Welcome to Making of a Historian, the podcast chronicling one grad student's quest to study for his comprehensive exams. And this episode, we're going to be taking a backwards glance over all of the episodes that we've done over the past 10 or so days to do some sort of big synthetic history of capitalism. We're doing this because tomorrow I have a meeting with my advisor, and in that meeting he's going to ask me a bunch of big synthetic questions about the stuff that I've read, and I'm going to have to answer him, hopefully in a clear, concise, and short way. And this is going to be really hard for me about this topic in particular because as I've been reading, it's kind of grown far, far, far too big in my head. At first, I thought it would be a simple sort of reading list about finance and capitalism and ideas of that nature, but it's kind of grown into this kind of big amorphous thing about all of the interlocking pieces of 19th century finance production and culture. But we'll see if I can synthesize it down to something a little bit more uh, manageable. So the other problem with this history of capitalism isn't just that it's big topically. It isn't just that it kind of aggressively goes out and gets new, new subjects over and over again, but that it's especially momentous. Usually when you're talking about academic history, you have to try really, really hard to get some sort of contemporary relevance. I mean, often we don't even search for any sort of contemporary relevance for our research. We just talk about a particular set of fashionable academic arguments. But the problem with this topic is exactly the opposite. You have to try really, really hard to not connect the stuff that you're talking about with contemporary concerns. You need to try really hard to make it look like you're not just doing some sort of special pleading for your particular political commitments. And it's even harder to do this sort of balancing act in the learning experience of orals. Because as you're framing these narratives, as you're pulling together facts, as you're even selecting your books, you're also constantly learning. Your views are constantly changing, and you yourself are uncertain about what it is you actually believe. So that being said, I'm going to give you a map to the episode, and then we'll get stuck down into it. First, we're going to talk about the stakes of this question. Why is it that we study history of capitalism? What does that even mean, both materially, historically, and academically? Then we're going to talk about the four pillars on which I think 19th century international capitalism rests, and that's finance, machines, firms, and culture. Then we're going to talk a little bit about something I read a lot about that I can't exactly fit into this broader narrative, and that is money. Um, finally, we're going to talk very briefly about how this particular order ended with the First World War, or didn't end depending on who you believe. So let's talk about what's at stake. Sometime in the 19th century, something happens. We can call it modernity, capitalism, industrialization, whatever, but something happens. A new way of working, producing, consuming, doing politics. And there's a ton of different elements to this. People start living in cities more. They read books. They read newspapers. They start to care about national politics. They identify more with the nation than with their locality. They work for a wage. There's tons and tons of different things, but let's talk about the economic issues here. The first 
big change is a great divergence of income between the West and the rest. It's in this time period that people in places like Britain, France, Germany, America, Australia, and Argentina change drastically from places like China and India. Another associated change is the shift in military power, which led to formal and informal imperialism. Also, there's a spread of kind of cookie cutter legal institutions, corporations, firms, financial institutions, and international economic integration. There's also a global specialization in which particular areas start to specialize in particular kinds of economic tasks. New transport technologies and telegraphs create a global integrated market. And there's a world capital market as well because of domestic money markets and international financial markets. Also, there's mass migration and communication. People are now moving to America, to Australia, to all of these different places because of steamships and other things like that. So it's this new world that we're trying to explain. And it's been one of the perennial questions of sociology and history, and so it's kind of freighted with a whole bunch of very, very smart people writing very, very smart things. And I'm going to run through a couple of the big ideas explaining this change. The first and probably the most well-known explanation for this change is the Marxian view. And this puts the blame or the praise for the modern world directly at the feet of the industrial revolution and the factory system. It spreads because of intense competition amongst capitalists leads to declining profits, which in turn demands finding new markets and new sources of raw material. It's this drive for new markets that fuels empire. Another also very influential and commonly held belief I'm going to call free trade liberalism. And this identifies the real origin of this new capitalist world in an unlocking of market forces. Because people are able to organize their market activity through price signals, there's huge advances based on free trade, beneficent division of labor, and freedom. Um, it's this kind of free trade liberalism that is being under attack right now by a lot of uh, both people on the left and the right. A third influential theory explaining all this, but far more academic, is what I'm going to call the culture explanation, or also the Weberian explanation. And we're going to talk a little bit about what Max Weber says about this just because he sums up the mechanism so well. So for Weber, the real thing that leads to modernity isn't machines or free trade. Rather, it's a new way that people have of thinking about themselves because of Calvinist ethics of saving and striving and uncertainty. It allows for new kinds of accumulation and improvement that slowly build up one on top of each other. This Protestant ethic remains even after the initial religion is gone. It kind of lives inside of us even as we're going out. There's a bunch of, of, of different versions of this, but we can all lump them together as cultural causes of capitalism. There's also institutional explanations for this. The big person here is Douglas North. And there, the explanation that North has for the rise of capitalism in the 18th and 19th centuries is political. Or it's because political things start new, beneficent kinds of institutional forces. 
Basically, the revolutionary settlement in 1688 created credible constraints on the monarch. It meant that the monarch stopped being able to steal stuff from people, and so people were able to do business activity without the fear of getting preyed upon. There's also the technological view. Coal, or the wave of gadgets, or smart inventors, or some sort of genius disruptor is the origin of the Industrial Revolution, and thus capitalism. Finally, there's the idea that it's finance that did it. This is the idea, the idea that small groups of elites who were in search for good investment opportunities aggressively expanded these kind of institutional development blocks to other countries in order to find good rates of return. So now I'm going to try something really, really hard. I'm going to try to jam all the stuff that I learned into a very quick and brief summary of what I think actually happened. Now, in my meeting with my advisor, he suggested that I should aim for a minute. And with the marvelous technological advance of podcasting, we can see if I actually do it. Are you ready to get your timers out? Don't really get your timers out. I'm probably not going to make it. Like I said, there are four major changes in finance, machines, the firm, and culture. So we'll deal with finance first. During the 18th century, a loose coalition of moneyed and landed interests in London got rich off of investing in government debt. This provided a steady rate of return, creating what I'm going to call a giant pool of money. Wealthy, powerful people needed to invest this giant pool of money in something. After the Napoleonic Wars in 1815, because of tax problems, war weariness, the threat of revolution, and conservative ideology, the national debt was reduced. The giant pool of money needed somewhere to go. The solution was to create investment opportunities elsewhere that would have similar rates of return. They found it in foreign government debt, large heavy industry like railroads, and cheap government. And note that by putting finance first, this makes the Industrial Revolution a contingent part of the story. Uh, there's lots of scholars who say that, for example, growth rates during the 18th century were slow despite the Industrial Revolution because this finance capitalism was choking out bank investment and in actual productive goods. Um, in the 19th century, similarly, high rates of British investment abroad meant that some people think that local industries were undercapitalized, which explains the rise of Germany and America and the long-term decline in Britain. Finally, the push for efficient government, both locally and overseas, meant that local government was underfunded, leading to negative externalities. Negative externalities mean the bad things that happen that nobody has an individual incentive to change, like people pooping on the street. The second big change comes in machines. There's the obvious wave of gadgets of the Industrial Revolution, the steam engine, all of those wonderful little things that textile workers do called like the spinning jenny and the mule that I still can't keep straight. These allow for new forms of production. The big ones are three interrelated sectors, mining, which gives coal and iron ore, the metallurgy industries, which makes iron, which allows people to build things, things like our third industry, railroads, which allows people to transport stuff and people much cheaper, making this all a lot easier. You can imagine them as this kind of feedback loop, coal, iron, and railways. Because of 
the need for getting people to work in these factories for long periods of times and the expansion of the market, you get more and more people working for wages. And this meant that more and more people bought their necessities from the market, which meant that the market grew. Machines were also useful in closing the distance of the world, allowing for finance machines and firms to expand their geographic reach. We can look at the spread of railways across the world as a good example of this. Railways not only allowed people to get to places quicker, they not only allowed people to ship things quicker, but they were also great investment in, in instruments for the giant pool of money. Third is the firm, and we haven't discussed this as much because I have a whole nother list all about the rise of modern organizations, which we'll be dealing with in a month or so, but we can think of firms like the operating systems of the new global financial capitalism. And finally, there's two big cultural changes that really allow this to happen. The first is that the large amount of stuff available, the large variety of stuff, and the ease of buying and selling of this stuff because of the spread of paper money and available credit allow the creation of a consumer culture. This means that people live in this whole world of goods. There's books and teacups and coffee and drinks and movies. Well, not movies yet, but theater shows and gin palaces. There's a whole new world of consumption. And this first allows for greater material comforts. It also allows for there to be a moral change in how people envision the gaining of profit and the gaining of things. Things become not evil. Profit becomes not evil. The quote from somebody whose name I'm forgetting is, prayer before plenty, but plenty. There's a morality to the market, but the market still lets you get rich. The second big change is about the location of wealth, about the cultural construction of what wealth is. And we're gonna get a little bit abstract. So you can think in any culture, there's a bunch of different things that people view as establishing wealth. Um, you can imagine uh, wealth to be money, coins. It can also exist in land. It can also exist in people or in art or integrity or in the number of facts that you know. But one or two cultural conceptions of wealth will rise to the top. The big change in this time period is that all throughout the world, one of the dominant forms of wealth became abstract money. Money in an account somewhere in a bank. Money tied up in a government bond or an Argentinian bond or in a joint stock uh, company or in a factory that you've never seen money that exists as numbers on paper, as a vast system of trust and oversight. This, the rise of this abstract money has a bunch of effects. The first is that it means that investments are easier. Transfers of money are easier because money stops being something that has to be moved around physically. The second is that wealth can grow exponentially now with minimal problems. You don't need to hoard coins like you did in the 17th century. And hoarding coins was a problem because there weren't enough coins to go around. Also, and probably most importantly, because of the abstract nature of modern wealth, moral decisions get murky. 
You can invest in a company like the South Sea Company that lives off trading slaves without yourself feeling like you are morally culpable for the trading of slaves. You can buy sugar on the market without yourself feeling guilty about the people who are dying producing your sugar. This is something that is very familiar to us today because we recognize that our consumer decisions lead to a big effect on the well-being of the world. I think that was about five minutes, which is good, but not great. Um, so we're going to close with just this quick little note about currency because I read a lot about currency and I don't know how to fit it into the story. Um, and I don't want to because the story is already kind of big and bulky. Um, but two big changes happen with the currency in the 18th and 19th centuries in Britain. The first is the change in how people are actually using money itself. So in the uh, 18th century, coins are kind of rare. They're scarce. People don't have a ton of money. And this is because coins are actually valuable. They're made out of gold and silver, and people were chipping them and clipping them, and it meant that there was a lot of bad money. There was this thing called the Great Recoinage pushed by, of all people, Isaac Newton in the late 17th century, and this was a way of getting the coins back on a solid footing. But because of some obscure stuff we don't need to go into, it also reduced the supply of coins by like a third. This meant that nobody had coins to do business, and they used this elaborate credit system. It was the rise of the Bank of England stocks, and then later in the 19th century, the establishment of some sort of proper paper currency thing that I am not remembering now, that's shifted this from an informal credit economy to an economy that ran on paper money. The second big change is the rise of the gold standard, and this happened in the last quarter of the 19th century. And the gold standard basically means that any currency on the gold standard is just pegged to a particular price of gold. A dollar equals, you know, X number of grams of gold. And on principle, this money is fully convertible, which means that you can go to like Fort Knox and give them a dollar and they'd give you X number of grams of gold in return. Why is the gold standard important? Well, it allows international markets to be much more interconnected because currencies don't float against each other. A dollar will equal the same number of British pounds every single day. It also established Britain's centrality to the international financial market because it was the monetary clearinghouse. It's where everybody went to do all of these trades. And finally, it established a kind of inevitable moral order to the financial system. The idea was that gold was kind of a default, a natural unimpeachable system that was kind of by nature inscribed with a particular kind of value. But there's a problem. And these are called uh, a trilemma by the economic historians. They say basically that there's three things that governments want to have and they can only have two of them. And that's free capital movements, fixed exchange rates, and monetary autonomy. If you want people to be able to trade capital and do this at fixed exchange rates, you can't have control over your monetary system. And that's how things were in the 19th century. There's also a political trilemma that's been added to this. Governments want democracy, national sovereignty, and global economic integration. But it seems like you might not be able to have all three at the same time. 
you might be able to have democracy and global economic integration, but that would rely on international institutions that undermine national sovereignty. Look today at the crisis over things like the IMF and the UN to see what that trilemma is all about. So I've just described this rise of a particular kind of financial system and hopefully explained why it's important. And now very briefly, I'm gonna explain why it fell. In August, 1914, people started shooting at each other in Europe. And within days, this international financial system closed. Stock markets closed. People stopped trading with one another. There started to be uh, tariffs when tariffs weren't around anymore. And we'll get to that in another episode. Thanks very much for joining me on Making of Historian. I will be with you guys tomorrow where we're going to be talking about the Industrial Revolution in a lot more depth. Um, thanks very, very much to Jonathan Lear, who's made the wonderful music that will greet you guys at the beginning and end of every episode. Thank you also to Duncan Barton, who did our art. Uh, and thank you, my listeners, for continuing to listen. If you like the show, please rate and review us on iTunes. Those ratings really help, so say other podcasters. Um, if you also really like us, share us on your social media, join the Facebook group, and maybe drop me a line at the Facebook group. That would be cool. Um, thanks very much, and I'll see you tomorrow.